You're listening to Virtue of West with me, Tara McCarthy, and my co-host, Brittany Patterbone. Today we are talking with author Dr. Bill Warner. Bill holds a PhD in physics and math and has been a university professor, businessman, and applied physicist. He also runs the YouTube channel Political Islam, where he makes in-depth videos on various subjects relating to Islam. Thank you so much for joining us, Bill. Good to be here. Yeah, great to have you here. We've been looking forward to this, haven't we, Brittany? Yes, we have. Good. Good. We'll be talking about my favorite subject, political Islam. <laughs> exactly. Sounds good. And um, I just asked some people on Instagram um, if there's a particular question that they're burning to have answered, so I thought I'd throw this one out uh, to start with, which is, uh, why is it, do you think, that we see feminists and uh, very liberal leftists, progressives, uh, just love Islam so much when, in fact, it's um, very patriarchal and violence toward women um, and it seems to deny all of their core values yet they they love uh, Muslims and Islam so much. You've asked the great question. Everything else we're going to talk about today is small change compared to this and let me say that I cannot fully answer the question but the West seems to be in, in asking itself the question do we really want to exist and I'm not sure that we've come up with an answer we like. In America, we have the left is very powerful, the progressives are very powerful, and they've constructed a world in which everything is equal. There is no better, no worse. One culture is as good as another. And cultures that are not doing well, it's simply because the whites are oppressors, and the people who are not doing well are victims. So this oppressor-victim model uh, simply asks the question, well, who seems to be losing? And if they're losing, they're the ones we support. I, on the other hand, maintain that Islam has a precise doctrine, which is horrible to women and to democracy and so therefore we ought to judge Islam not on the basis of the nice person in front of us but on the doctrine that he actually adheres to. Mm -hmm. Yeah that makes a lot of sense and when people criticize Islam they are typically told that um, they don't understand Islam um, so they can't criticize it. So what's your take on that? Well it can be understood but you've put out there probably the biggest lie about Islam which is Oh, no one can understand it. You need to be like a quantum physicist, or even if you're a quantum physicist, you can't understand Islam. Oddly enough, an illiterate peasant from Egypt can understand Islam as long as he's a Muslim. Peculiar, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah. anyway, let, let's give the answer to what is Islam, because everything I'll say today depends upon this. Most people think that Islam is a religion found in the Quran. Well, if we try to use that, we'll discover something very peculiar. I've read the Quran many, many times, and there's not enough information in it to practice the five pillars of Islam. Well, where's the missing pieces here? Well, there are 91 verses in the Quran which say that Muhammad is the perfect human being and the perfect Muslim. And where do we find Muhammad? Well, we find him in his biography of Sarah and his traditions, the Hadith, which is a collection of small stories. And here's the odd thing about this. The Quran, if we took in these three books, Quran, Sarah, Hadith, and laid them on a table, you'd go, well, the Quran is not very big. Indeed, it's only 14% of the textual doctrine of Islam. Now, here's the thing. Here's the good news. People say, well, I can't understand the Quran. It's like so complicated. The Sirah, Muhammad's life, is a biography. Can you understand a biography? Of course you can. And the Hadith, his traditions are little stories. Smallest one is war is deceit. Can you understand a small story? Of course you can. So what I've said here is, don't try to understand Islam, instead understand Muhammad. You can do that. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I teach people. Do not start with the Quran, start with Muhammad. 
Mm-hmm. So that's a short, a sort of short answer. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And when you, Tara, you mentioned there's a lot of people who say, oh, you don't understand Islam. Even Linda Sarsour tweeted, oh, you, Sharia law is misunderstood. And then yet, <laughs> and the other <laughs> day, she, she was trending on Twitter because she compared um, standing up to the oppression that Muslims face in society, Western society, as a form of jihad, and that she hopes that Allah will accept this as a form of jihad. What do you think of this? She was getting a lot of criticism. <laughs> well, she's about 2% correct. Let's say, what is jihad? Where do we find jihad? Well, we find it in the life of Muhammad. We find jihad in the Quran. And there are several kinds of jihad. This is, she's not giving you the full truth. There's jihad of money. There's jihad of the sword, which is what we see in the headlines. There's jihad of reading and writing. And then there's jihad of struggle, spiritual struggle. Now, I love to measure things. And if we go through looking for jihad in the doctrine of Quran, Sarah Hadith, the Hadith of traditions, let's choose that. Indeed, let's choose Bukhari. Bukhari has about 7,000 traditions. Of those, 21% are about jihad. So let's take all the jihad hadiths, traditions, and look at them. We'll discover that only 2% of those jihad hadiths are about spiritual struggle as jihad. The other 98% are about killing kafirs, the unbelievers. Mm-hmm. So her spiritual struggle is indeed about 2% of jihad. But she's also practicing another form of jihad, which is deception. War is deceit, the shortest hadith. So she's about this much right. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Do you see my method, by the way? I yeah. answer all questions based on Quran, Sarah, Hadith. Linda Sassur is not to tell me what Islam is. There's only one, two people I refer to, or two sources for Islam, the Quran and Muhammad. She's not one of those two. Why is it uh, we've seen so many European women and children raped by Muslims, um, and why are they often not convicted um, and let off with light sentences in Europe? You've asked a very sad question. I'm going to give you a more specific example. I read recently of a Swedish boy who was 12 years old who was raped by an African Muslim, uh, Afghani Muslim, and he received 30-day sentence. 30 days. Now, if that were my child, I would not call that justice. And yet mm-hmm. the Swedes think that is justice because they don't. We get into this business of the oppressor and the victim. Who's the victim here? Well, the Swedes look at it and say, oh, the poor boy of 12 years old has been permanently scarred. He's not the victim. The real victim is the oppressed brown man. So there's an odd sort of self-hatred of your own race in this. And we see it not only in Sweden, although I see it a lot there. We see it in Germany. Look at this is the oddest thing. Merkel claims to be a woman. Why would she not stand up for German women? Mm-hmm. I mean, why is it that women seem to not have universal human rights? Why is it that in America, the so-called feminists have nothing to say about FGM, female genital mutilation, the rape of women? They have nothing to say. Uh, so why are we so silent? I come back to this existential question. Do we want to continue to exist? We seem to be on a suicide mission here or at least some people are, and unfortunately, too many of these are women. Mm -hmm. So my explanation is we're not applying real justice. We're applying politically correct justice in which the minority is always the aggrieved victim, no matter what they do. Yeah, actually, just to highlight that, in the UK, um, hundreds of people have been 
put in prison for criticizing Islam, yet even though female genital mutilation is illegal and thousands and thousands of cases have happened in the UK, no one has been prosecuted for it. Hello. This is the kind of thing that taken to an extreme is what causes revolutions. Mm -hmm. You see, as if I were a Brit, I would not think that whoever, I believe Miss May is the current prime minister. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't represent me. She doesn't represent me at all in her views. Because I say if I'm a Brit and I get harmed, is it not one of the chief uses of government and reasons for government to exist is to protect its citizens? I mean, mm -hmm. really, when you no longer protect your citizens, you start having a, why do you exist anymore? It's sort of like living in a house that doesn't have a roof on it. Yeah, I mean, the, the number one thing they should be doing is protecting the borders. And all of our governments are failing to do that right now. This is true. Now, we have a president in America who is a most, let me say it as an American about Trump. He's the oddest president we've ever had. And I am a <laughs> student of American history. He is like nothing else we have ever, ever seen. And of course, that's the reason he was elected, because in America, there was a sort of revolution in the sense of people got tired of the standard republic. In America, we have two parties, Democrat and Republican, primarily. And it, everyone now is disgusted with the Republicans and disgust and hate the Democrats or some version thereof. And so Trump came along and everybody looked at him and said, you're none of the above. So we'll choose you because you're none of the above. And this is what right. happens in politics when the leaders finally divorce themselves completely by the people they're supposed to be helping, not ruling and crushing. Mm -hmm. None of us want to elect a tyrant, and yet we seem to be getting tyrants. It's, Those who do not protect the innocent, why do we even have a police force if they won't protect the innocent? And yet we had an, a sex ring running in Manchester, I believe, with the police force was compliant with it. They just, we won't look. Mm -hmm. Multiple places over the UK, they've been doing that. You know. It's a tragedy, mm -hmm. and I'm not supposed to get angry at it. Mm -hmm. It's nice to know, though, that that many Americans in electing Trump were ready for change, wanted change, because you never would have known before then because so many people were silent about it. It was so shocking, the whole entire election, but in a good way. And uh, I just want to point out, you when you're talking about the, the feminists before, um, they are people who publicly take on the mantle of advocating for women. And so when they choose not to speak out about these things, by extension, they are oppressing women. They're doing the very thing that they're claiming to fight against. And then their battles, they pick it, you know, with small things like mansplaining and, and, and the fictitious wage gap. So it's just a very infuriating situation, the whole thing around. But um, uh, just the hypocrisy is mind blowing. But but I had a question in regards to reforming Islam. I recently interviewed a practicing Muslim. I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is Imam um, Tawhidi. And he's advocating for the reform of Islam. So to remove all of the violence and murder and etc. What do you think about this? Do you think it's possible? Gosh, this is the saddest question you're going to ask today. I only wish it were true. Let's go back. Remember when we first started talking, I says, what is Islam? It is Quran. It is Sirah. It is Hadith. Let's take the Quran first. The Quran is complete by its own. Every Muslim believes the Quran is a perfect book, contains everything necessary for salvation. It's a uniform. It is a universal book. Now, how do you reform perfection? I mean, what do you do with perfection? And what do you say about, well, this verse here about beating women, we're going to take that out. 
how do you take that out? I mean, how do you do that? The 91 verses which say Muhammad is the perfect human being, the perfect prototype, the divine human prototype. How do you say, well, no, Muhammad was wrong here when he said, kill the Jews. So how does one change what is perfect and true? I don't understand it. How does one remove? If the Quran is complete and you take something away from it, then what was wrong with it before when you said it was complete? Look, I wish it were reformable, but let me tell you this. We've had many reforms in the 20th century and the 21st century. In the 21st century, we have Islamic State. In the 20th century, we have the Taliban, Wahhabism, uh, Boko Haram. These are all reform movements. Now, let's carry this argument one further. Let's say that this gentleman you spoke with is very clever. Let's say that he's very intelligent and he's very compassionate. What body does he appear in front of to say, we're going to change this? Who's the we that can change anything? You can have a person who says, I am looking for a reformed Islam, but how does one actually achieve a reform of something that is perfect, and who do you present it to? If you're a Catholic, you can at least appeal to the Pope or the College of Cardinals. But um, there is no uniform center of knowledge for Islam. It's a peculiar thing. There's, there's no central source of power. There's like Al-Azhar University, but their scholarship is only a recommendation, as it were, and even they cannot change Islam either. So if it could only be reformed, I wouldn't be here. Uh, I'm an old man who loves to work with woodwork, and I would be in my wood shop, which is where I was on 9-11, September 2001. So I only wish it were true that it could be reformed, but I don't see how that is logically possible. Muhammad's the perfect man. How do you say, well, that when Muhammad did that, that was bad. Really? So there's bad Muhammad and there's good Muhammad? Really? Allah says it's all good. Do you, understand, do you see my argument? Yes, here? I do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's particularly interesting and also a bit disturbing that you pointed out how there is no epicenter, like a head to Islam. There is no um, prime authority that is in existence anyway that's um, tangible. It's Allah who you can't see or Muhammad who's dead. So that is scary in itself because you have all these different factions then that develop and, and you can't communicate um there's no one to order them to do what? So. Exactly. Islam is, is strangely like the internet. It's everywhere but nowhere. Do you see the analogy? Yes. Where, where's the center of the internet? You and I are speaking over the internet right now. Where's the center of it? It's kind of universal. And Islam is the same way. There's no central body to appeal to. Look, I wish that I wouldn't have to say these things. But... What happened with, was the beauty of this, uh, the attractiveness of this model was, is that there was a form in Christianity which profoundly changed it. But that reforming went back to the original foundation, which was the Gospels and the Bible. It was not some, it, it was going back to the roots. And unfortunately in Islam, when you go back to the roots, it gets worse and worse. Here's another reason it won't be reformed. Let's look at the life of Muhammad. He preached the religion of Islam for 13 years in Mecca and converted 150 Arabs to Islam. That's about 10 a year. He went to Medina. He became a politician and a jihadist, and when he died, every Arab in the Arabian Peninsula was a Muslim. Translation, religion was not success. Jihad and politics was a success. Well, now, wait a minute. You're going to throw away the part that made you successful? I don't think so. There's another reason it won't be reformed either. In America, we have an expression, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. 
Why should Islam want to reform itself? It's expanding at a greater rate than it ever has before in history. It's dominating everywhere. It's winning, 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 and we're losing, losing, losing. Why would you want to change that? Do you follow my reasoning here? Yes. Yeah, that actually leads on to my uh, next question, which is Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. It's set to be the primary religion in the world within 50 years. What is it about Islam that enables it to grow and spread so rapidly? There are many reasons for this, and some of them depend on your race and sex. Let's start with sex. In America, it is difficult to find a it is difficult for a woman to find a husband. She can find a lover, but to find a husband is very difficult. And if you're black in America, it's very difficult. But if you're a woman and you join up and become a Muslim, you'll get a husband very easily because Islam holds marriage in the highest position, not the individual, but the but the married couple. So, but here's another reason: we live in a world in which a lot of central authority is eroded away, and you can get any advice you want from the web, but is that really the best place to get advice? Islam offers sure, certain answers. How do you eat food? Here's how you do it. What food do you eat? Here's how you do it. How, what do I do in marriage? Here's how I'm the perfect husband. Here's how I'm the perfect wife. Here am I, here's how to be the perfect father. You have a complete set of answers. There are many people who don't respond too well to living in a room without walls. They want something they can be contained in. So the other thing is, is that Muslims are very confident of themselves. Here in America, Christians have become apologetic and are willing to measure themselves by their failures, not their success. Here's another reason. People love a strong horse. That's a quote from Osama bin Laden after 9-11. Do you know that after 9-11 in America, many people became Muslims? Why? Because they love a strong horse. They love a winner. Islam is on its toes and moving faster and faster and more and more powerful. And people go, hey, I want the strong horse. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the reasons that I think that Islam grows so fast. So would you please give an explanation of the Islamic term taqiyya? Yes, a fascinating concept because behind the concept is the idea of sacred deceit. Now think about that, sacred deceit. Let's, I'm going to give you a hadith, a small tradition of Muhammad. Who will kill Ashraf who has offended Allah and his prophet? I will, Muhammad, but in order to do so, I will need to deceive him. May I do so? Yes, deceive him. Now, what I've told you here is a hadith, which means it stands as the perfect example of being the perfect Muslim. Muhammad repeatedly said to Muslims, deceive the kafir, deceive the non-believer, the infidel, if it will advance Islam. So a Muslim is not supposed to lie to another Muslim, but he can lie to the kafir if it will advance Islam. And indeed, we're not touching upon what is the morality of Islamic morality, what is Islamic morality. Anything that will advance Islam is a moral act. So deception is part of Islam. Now there's another concept, which is sacred hate. I mean, think about this for a moment. To hate what Allah hates, and what does Allah hate? Allah hates the kafir. To love whom Allah loves, and who does Allah love? The Muslim. You see here that we don't have a golden rule in action in this moral system. So takia or takia is sacred deception. And it means to say whatever will advance Islam, but not to lie as to individuals. That is, if you're a car dealer, not to lie about the car, but if it will advance Islam, then you may deceive. Peculiar. Yeah. So um, 
why is it that Europeans are so particularly naive? Like, having spoken with Americans and Europeans about this topic, I find that the Europeans are the most naive. Like, there's something about Americans that actually they seem a little bit more immune to the Islamic infiltration. Have you noticed this? Yes, I have. I go to Europe twice a year dealing with Islam. And although Americans look like Europeans, white ones, there are subtle differences I discover. The average European is more of a socialist than the average American. Mm-hmm. America has this a concept of the rugged individual. Uh, Clint Eastwood frequently portray, portrays a rugged individual who stands against the system when the system is corrupt. And that is a popular thought, a meme, I think it's called, in America. So I think that may be one thing. But it's interesting, is it not, that Europe's, Europeans would not know as much about Islam as Americans because you've been living next to the door to them for a long time. So it's interesting that Europeans know as little as they do, and I don't have a full explanation for this, but I think it somewhat has to do with a respect for authority. Americans don't respect authority as much as Europeans. And when I'm in Germany, Germans have a very big respect for authority. And Americans tend to be not so much like that, thank you. And so I think it serves us well on this issue because, for instance, in America, many people do not believe Barack Obama when he said that Islam was saying basically the best thing you could do. Mm-hmm. But I really don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. What do you believe that coexistence with, with Islam would look like uh, should they ever gain a dominant position in society? I can give you a precise answer for this, and that is called the Treaty of Umar. We will become demis, D-H-I-M-M-I. We can still have a religion. We can still do many things. We don't have to convert to Islam, but we must live under the Sharia. Now, let me describe what it was like for the demi in Turkey, uh, in Syria, and other such countries as Spain, for instance. Christians cannot be in a position of authority over a non-Muslim. So that means you're not going to be the boss. Christians cannot serve in the military. And now there's other rules. You have to wear special clothing. You can't have weapons. Uh, For instance, under Islam, Christians cannot have a church that's taller than a mosque. I saw in the Balkans one time a peculiar church when it was being ruled by the Ottomans. In order to have enough ceiling, they dug down into the earth so that when you're inside the church, you could be tall. But outside the church, it had to be less than the the, uh, mosque, which was nearby. So everything has to be subjugated. Uh, Christians, for instance, would not be allowed to practice the concept of conversion. Uh, Christians can be taken as slaves. And basically, oh, and there's another interesting thing. A non-Muslim, a Kafir, cannot testify in court against a Muslim. Now think about this. If you have a Muslim business partner and he puts the shaft to you, screws you, you can't sue him in court. You can't have a weapon. We must always, so if we want to know what the future is like, we need to know what the past is like. And this is the past under Islam. This is the so-called tolerance of Islam, being a dhimmi. Muslims like to say, oh, we love Christians and Jews. They have a special place in our uh, society. And they do have a special place, a place of subjugation. So that's the surest answer I've given you today. The past will be the future. And the future will be the past. Mm-hmm. Um, would you advocate a full Muslim ban, like having done all the research you've done? Um, if you had the power to enforce it, would you? And how would you go about it? Because many people say, oh, you can't, you can't really do a religious test. People would just lie on the test, etc. Okay, 
you've set up, you can't set a religious test, which is true in America, you cannot. And I will not propose a religious test. Let's go back to something first. Islam is not just a religion. If you go through the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith, and you, and you can do this, and I have done it, and you sort everything you read into that which involves being a Muslim and that which is done to the kafir, the non-believer, you will discover, oddly enough, that the bulk, 51% of the Quran, Sirah, and Hadith is about the kafir, the non-Muslim. Now, I am not a part of Islam, and if you're a kafir, you're not a part of Islam. So therefore, any actions by Islam towards the kafir are political. Let me give you an example. In America, Muslims are beginning to, on Friday, commandeer a street and have public prayers. Do you have this in Europe? I believe you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You say, well, that's their religious right. It is their right to have the religion and pray, but it is not their right to commandeer the street. That is a political action. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, therefore, I would judge a man on his politics, not his religion. And one of the things I would say is your political system does it preach that it is the highest legal authority in the land? And the Sharia does say that. The Sharia is the highest authority because it's God's law. So anyone who wishes to have any Sharia should not be allowed to be an American citizen because that means we have a constitution. And Article 6 of the Constitution says the Constitution of the United States is the highest legal authority in the land. But the Sharia says, oh, no, Allah is the highest legal authority in the land. So I would use the question of the Sharia to parse people into whether they could become a citizen or not. But wouldn't they just lie? Wouldn't they just lie on the application? They would lie, but it turns out if you can prove they lied, then then, then they can't be a citizen. To lie under federal oath is a uh, crime, a felony, actually. Mm -hmm. It's a step forward, but can you see my method? That we use political methods, we don't use religious methods. Yeah. And by the way, the most powerful thing is the public. If a Muslim... Let's imagine a world in which was not politically correct. Let's imagine a world in which people knew what Islam meant. This means when you're working with someone who's a Muslim, you would question them. Do you really believe that I'm a less of a person than you? These personal questions such as this, a public pressure would create a falling away from Islam. Because many of the things when you state them explicitly, do you really believe that a woman is half a man in value? I don't believe that. Do you? Imagine if you were a Muslim and you were constantly being challenged by the citizenry around you about your truest beliefs. What would happen is you would either leave or become an apostate. That is the most powerful force, the force of the citizens themselves. But to do that, we need citizens who have a backbone and who are willing to stand up for the truth of the matter, but also to have a knowledge of Islam. I find that when people learn what the real knowledge of Islam means, how women are treated, how children are treated, slavery and other such issues, they're like, I don't want any part of that. So I'm a scholar who believes that the solution for against Islam is knowledge, 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 knowledge of Quran, Sirah, Hadith, and Sharia. Mm-hmm. So that's my Especially soapbox. if very influential public figures take up, learn about Islam and start speaking out against it. Because so many people, the majority of people are sheep. So they would in turn follow. And, and it's, it's more popular right now to be like, not all Muslims. That's the only thing they say. That's the defense that they have. But... Not all Muslims, but all of Islam. You you notice something here. What I always deal with is the doctrine of political Islam. That does not change. It doesn't depend on who you are as to what it is. So I I keep pointing out the fact that I have a method which I use, and it's knowledge, and we should use that. And have some courage as well. Uh, This is the unusual thing about Donald Trump. He actually said, look, there's something about Islam that is bad, because what did Barack Obama tell us? Oh, it's all good, dude. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> the religion of peace. Oh, get out of here. <laughs> but now it does, there's a peculiar twisted truth to that. Peace comes in Islam after you submit to the Sharia. So once you agree to live under Sharia, there's peace. Mm-hmm. But what a peace. I'd rather have war. Kind of on that note, could you actually give a brief overview of what Sharia law entails, just for those who aren't educated on, on what it is? Be delighted to. Thank you. We have Quran, we have Sarah, we have Hadith. So let's say that you're a devout Muslim and you want to know how to have sex with your wife. You don't want to sit down and read all three books. Instead, what you need is a system of laws which has pulled all of this information together. So under the Sharia, you take and apply all the rules of, say, how to be a father, and they're all pulled together in one place. So you don't have to read all three books. It's a legal system, but it's more than a legal system. It's also a code of life. I have I look up over my desk here and I see a book that's a Sharia manual. Thirty five percent of it is about how to practice the five pillars of Islam. But included within the Sharia is also the concept of what is jihad. Jihad is war against the kafir until he submits to the Sharia. So the Sharia is very valuable. If you want to make a will, here's everything in one section on how to make a will for your family. So the Sharia is the practical application of Quran, Sirah, Hadith, the practical application of Allah and Muhammad to a task at hand in the modern day. Should a woman be allowed to drive a car? Well, the answer is found in the Sharia, which means you have to go to the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith. So it's a legal compendium, which lets it easy for you to follow the Sunnah of Muhammad and what the Quran says about any daily life, including how to knock on a door, how to drink a glass of water, how to have sex with your wife. It goes on and on and on. It's so finely detailed, it even tells you how to lay on your back. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, for example, when Boko Haram, the Nigerian um, version of ISIS, basically kidnapped 200 schoolgirls and sold them into sex, Sharia law? Perfectly aligned with Sharia law. Muhammad had sex slaves. The highest priced slave in the Meccan slave market was always a white woman. Hmm, I wonder why that was. Because Muhammad's favorite sex slave was a white Christian woman. So sex slavery is well documented. It is possible if you capture a Kafir woman and she's under your control, if she is married, see a Muslim can't have uh, sex with someone who's married. But the divorce is immediate once you're under control. So therefore, he can have sex with those whom his right hand possesses. That's mm-hmm. the term for a slave. So a woman, can have, you can have sex with her. When Bokar Haram did this, it is business just like Muhammad did. Mm-hmm. Bokar Haram and Taliban and Islamic State are meticulous about their doctrine. You say, well, it couldn't be true because it's so brutal. It is true and it is that brutal. Uh, what are some of the more um, concerning aspects of Sharia law? Like, is it true that if you steal, then you can get your hand cut off, and or for adultery, you can be stoned? These kind of things. Because you see these a lot of these floating around, and I'm wondering, like, what is the truth to these kinds of things? The answer is yes. Those are all true. They're all things that are found in the Quran. Now, Sharia law, though, has many gradations. You've picked out the most violent, but it also contains the status of the demi. It contains the code of moral and morality of hating the Kafir and loving the Muslim, which I find more pernicious than stoning because a man of my age is not going to be committing adultery anyway. So what do I care? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, 
So the Sharia is, is in depth. It's a, there is nothing you do in life that Sharia doesn't have a statement about, and you have to do it that way. And so minor things and major things. Very few people follow all of the Sharia. For one thing, it doesn't work too well in business law, the lack of interest. One of the things that Linda Saussure said about Sharia is, oh, your credit card won't have any interest. Yes, Linda, you're right. Instead, it'll be a user's fee, and it'll be even more than the interest rate would have been. Who cares what you call it as long as you're reaching in my pocket to get my money? Mm-hmm. Something else I've I've heard about in Afghanistan is that they take, you know, six-year-old, nine-year-old boys and they use them as um, prostitutes. And they, yes. they actually have, like, parties where there are, like, 50 different men and there's, like, these little boys walking around wearing makeup and then they rape them afterwards. And uh, the strange thing about this is that they seem to have a absolute hatred for homosexuals, want to kill homosexuals. Yet many of them seem to participate in raping underage boys. So what's going on? Well, I don't know what's going on in their hearts, but I can tell you what goes on in the Quran. <clears throat> one of the advantages <clears throat> in the Quran, one of the advantages of going to heaven if you're a man is not only will you have huris, which are Allah's perfect women sexual partners with thousand-year orgasms and all of that, but there's also the presence of small boys as beautiful as pearls. Hmm. Interesting. Now let's talk about what homosexuality is. Homosexuality is condemned in the Quran very explicitly, but homosexuality is when you care for the person you're with. It's not the actual physical act of coupling up because if you're the older man, then you're dominating the younger boy. And this, therefore, is an act of power, not an act of love. Right, because, yeah, I've heard of um, an honor, what they call honor crimes. So there was a man. I think he was a European man who was dating a Muslim woman and her dad raped him as an, as an act of honor. Now, I haven't heard that one. So you, you've done something for me here today. I, yeah, I do this all the time. One. <clears throat> and I don't you learn a lot new, but you've now taught me something new. Honor killing. One of the things you've asked me earlier about Sharia, one of the interesting things about the Sharia is there is no penalty if you kill your child or you kill your grandchild. Wow. The honor killing as such is not said to be, ha- it does not command it to be happened, but if it does happen, there's no penalty. You get the subtle difference here. It's not, you, you don't have to mm-hmm. kill your daughter if she flirts with a Kaffir boy, but you can and there's no penalty. Mm-hmm. So honor killing is all part of, look, as a man, you're, you're to control your wife's private parts and your daughter's private parts. This is a matter of public shame if you do not. So an honor killing is not so much against the girl who's being killed as it reestablishes your power as a man within the Islamic community. It's all about power. Is this why, um, so some people have said things like, oh, Muslims find Europeans weak because, for example, we're constantly trying to appease them, we're constantly trying to please them, we're constantly trying to make them happy, and they just ask for more and more and more, um, and they're never satisfied, and it's it's almost like they spit in your face when when you try to show them generosity. Is there anything about like this culture? In Islam, power is the real desirability. We have created a culture in which compassion is one of the key elements. In Islam, compassion to the kafir is not even a theoretical possibility. The kafir is to be dominated. Remember what I told you about the church? The mosque had to be higher than the church. Mm-hmm. 
in all matters, this is the teaching of the Sharia. The Kafir is always inferior to the Muslim in everything, in every way. Now, if the Kafir, and if you're in a Kafir nation, you can't assert this immediately, but you can always hold it in your heart. One of my favorite hadith is this. We smile at your face with hate in our heart. Think about what I just told you. Yeah, that's creepy. <laughs> we smile at your face with hate in our heart. That would be a great point to wrap up on. I'd just like to ask you, Bill, is there anything else about Islam, Sharia, the Muslim invasion into Europe, the Muslim migration into the U.S. Um, that you'd like us to know or that you'd like our audience members to know? We're involved with a civilizational war. This is not a matter of migration as it's frequently presented to us. Islam is a civilization that operates on dualistic ethics. It doesn't have a golden rule. And it operates on that knowledge is found through power, not through the critical thought. Western civilization has as its cornerstone of ethics the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Which others? All others. It has as its intellectual cornerstone critical thought, scientific thought. You can't have scientific thought and authoritative thought together, side by side, because they are not compatible. Islam is a civilization that is not compatible with ours. We have leaders who are afraid, both in the universities, the churches, and in government. And so as a citizen, we must take the fight upon ourselves. It's a fight of knowledge. So before you can do anything, you need to know what you mean when you say Islam, what Quran, Surah Hadith mean. But this is a war of civilizations. And if we lose, it's not that we lose, it's our civilization will cease to exist. Mm -hmm. So fight, what is fight for what is precious. Yeah. And I mean, you spoke about Turkey as well. We see in Turkey um, that the native European people, the Armenian people who've been living there under the Ottoman Empire as dhimmis, they were eventually, so to begin with, it was like they had all their rights stripped of them, but eventually they were genocided. Yeah. So yes. this, you know, this is what we're facing if we don't take action to prevent the destruction of our civilization. Mm -hmm. You were precisely one, correct. 1.5 million, they genocided. Horrible. In I'm, the 20th I've, century alone. Yeah, the well, 20th century the, the alone. yeah, the Armenian genocide. Um, they were, Which Turkey says never happened. Yeah, exactly. They still deny knowledge of it. So uh, I, I would encourage people to look into the Armenian genocide. If you don't know much about it, I've been researching it lately, and it's absolutely horrific. So maybe it's a sign of what's to come. Should we allow this um, Muslims to to get to the point Islam where it dominates our own society? Okay, we, we've actually we've come to the end of our show now, but it's been so wonderful and educational to have you, Bill. We really appreciate your time. Uh, where's the best place for people to find more about um, uh, your channel online? <laughs> it's Political Islam on YouTube, correct? Political Islam on YouTube, and then I have a website, www.politicalislam.com. I've been at this for a while. And contrary to what you've been told, you, anyone can understand Islam. It's actually quite simple because my books are written for that simple purpose, to make Islam easy to understand so you can use your own brain and make a decision. <laughs> Wonderful. We will link all that below. And thanks to our audience for listening to this week's episode of Virtual for West. If you like this show, please make sure you subscribe. And if you know a friend who might enjoy this episode, please share it with them. You can also find Brittany's award-winning book, Hatred Day, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and audible and remember to check out tara's other podcasts the reality call show for in-depth interviews with scientists philosophers and thought leaders thank you so much for watching and thank you so much once again bill it's been really lovely having you i've had fun thank you bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.